Welcome to the Compliance Perspectives Podcast. I'm Adam Turtle-Tubb from the Society of Corporate Compliance and Ethics and Healthcare Compliance Association. Joining us today from Miami is Raul Ordonez. Raul is the Associate Vice President for Compliance at Jackson Health System. And today we're going to be talking about telehealth that's exploded on the scene during the pandemic. Uh, great opportunity there, but real compliance concerns. First, Raul, thank you for taking the time away to talk to us today. Thank you for having me on. Our pleasure. So let's start with a question I hate saying to say briefly, but um, when is and isn't telehealth permitted these days? So these days, uh, telehealth is, is actually permitted in, in a very large uh, scope of, of situations, which is uh, quite di different from what was historically the case. Historically, telehealth uh, was actually quite limited to what was uh, allowed by the statute in the Social Security Act, 1834M. Uh, and essentially services were limited to mostly uh, rural patients in rural settings. And uh, CMS has always had the authority to uh, allow for or determine what services would be allowed. And those services historically were, were also quite limited. So both the eligibility as well as the, the services themselves were, were quite limited. But as a result of the public health emergency, uh, CMS used its uh, authority uh, under its, its waiver authority to, to essentially allow for uh, hundreds of, of new codes that were uh, historically not uh, allowed to be provided um, via telehealth to now be reimbursable for, for Medicare patients. In addition, as to the eligibility, the uh, CMS actually expanded uh, those Medicare patients who would be eligible from, from those uh, within sort of a, a rural health environment to, to really uh, patients um, all over the United States, essentially and even allowed patients to receive telehealth services uh, from their own home. So the current environment is, is actually uh, very unique, but, but as, as far as, as where um, or, or what telehealth services are, are, um, are allowable, it's, it's quite broad. CMS actually has a, an entire list that, that's published and, and kept up to date that lists them uh, specifically, but these include uh, emergency services, critical care services, uh, services really be beyond the, the types of uh, consults and um, sort of physician visits that uh, were probably uh, anticipated or, or uh, included initially. And you know, all this, as you mentioned, really is a result of the public health emergency. So the question then gets to be, what's currently likely to change in the telehealth rules once the public health emergency ends? And we hope one day it will end. Yes. So CMS has stated that uh, first, when the public health emergency ends, it's sort of a, a emergency um, uh it's, it's, it's emergency powers will end or, or many of the waivers will end. So uh, presumably the social security statute, which had governed uh, the provision of telehealth and reimbursement of telehealth services before will go back to being in effect. So that will have a, a considerable impact on eligibility because the social security act uh, governs which patients uh, can can obtain which Medicare patients can obtain telehealth services and have them be reimbursable. 
Um, so, and in addition, as to the types of services that will be reimbursable, CMS has stated that many of the services that they allowed as part of the emergency waiver will, will, will go back to, uh, will be removed essentially from the, uh, uh, the telehealth list. Uh, nonetheless, CMS created a third category of uh, telehealth services that it titled category three. And these are services that uh, could, uh, under, under CMS's review, could be uh, reasonably uh, likely to have a clinical benefit when performed within the telehealth environment. Uh, so uh, CMS had stated that in order to continue the analysis of these specific uh, services, those services will remain on the telehealth list until the end of calendar year 2023. Uh, so uh, what we'll see is essentially uh, when the public health emergency ends, a, a considerable number of the services will be removed from the list and will no longer be um, uh, allowable or reimbursable, but uh, a considerable number of these services will continue to be reimbursable. And I think, uh, am I recalling right that a lot of mental health services were allowed, were, were anticipated to be made per, virtually permanent? Yes, and, and that is that is indeed the case. Thank you for, for reminding me of that, Adam. Uh, essentially, the mental health services uh, will be allowed to, uh, or, or will continue to be reimbursable. Uh, and, and the reason for that is because that was actually added to the Social Security uh, statute. Uh, so mm -hmm. there, are, there are some conditions uh, under which uh, those, uh, those mental health services would have to be provided. Um, but, but those include essentially that uh, a, a one in-person visit will have to have been provided in the six months prior to the, the telehealth visit. Um, and, and that's for, this, this includes a substance uh, use disorder, uh, but now includes uh, mental health, just mental, mental health generally. Interesting. So is it time for compliance team to start working with the frontline practitioners and business teams to start preparing for the changes that will happen at the end of the emergency? Or is it too early given that we might see some of these rules extended? So it, it's, it's not too early. And, and the reason is because uh, uh, such a considerable amount of uh, these services that were made available through the public health emergency will not be extended. Uh, and, and given that, it's, it's probably a good idea to start uh, for compliance officers and compliance programs to start analyzing which of these services are, are currently uh, being performed by your respective institutions and um, how prepared are you as an organization to essentially stop these services when the public health emergency ends. In addition, even the services that do that are extended, um, it'll, it'll, it's also important to understand the extent to which uh, patient eligibility changes uh, post uh, public health emergency, because uh, the, the telehealth list may include some of these category three services that I alluded to before. Um, but if 
if the eligibility requirements go uh, back to what's required by the Social Security uh, Act uh, statute, then el eligibility will be much more narrow. So, so this is an analysis that's probably best to be done, uh, you know, with, with with planning rather than waiting for the public health emergency to end, uh, thinking that you have until you know 2023 to really think about this. Now. Telehealth is not one thing, and the rules aren't uniform, technology matters. Um, what are the rules likely to require on an ongoing basis when it comes to technology? So CMS has been uh, clear in its rulemaking that the, the standard for telehealth is real-time, uh, two-way, and audio and visual communication. Uh, so that is really the, the, the standard that um, it has maintained uh, his, historically and what it has, it has signaled will continue to be uh, the standard once the public health emergency ends. Now, during the public health emergency, CMS allowed for audio-only technology to be utilized for telehealth visits uh, in the uh, mental health uh, environment, as well as for E&M visits. But it stated in its most recent uh, final rule to the physician fee schedule that um, audio-only visits will only be, or audio-only technology will only be uh, permissible for uh, treatment in the mental health environment. And again, uh, and not for the, the ENM type uh, sort of broad um, uh, permissibility that currently exists. Uh, so. Really, uh, audio and visual technology, and it has to be real-time and two-way, is, is the standard for most types of, of healthcare delivery, except for, again, this exception for mental health services. So let's talk about some of the recent enforcement actions that have come about. Um, what can compliance teams learn from them? So I, I think probably the most valuable uh, lesson from the recent enforcement actions is, is just how uh, interested the federal government is in pursuing uh, false, uh, false claims or, or fraud, waste, and abuse uh, in, in the telehealth environments. Uh, that said, the, the recent enforcement actions uh, tend to, in many ways, predate the public health emergency and really focus on a certain type of fraud uh, commonly described as telefraud. And this is a type of uh, a fraud scheme where the telehealth service itself is not what is billed to the government. Uh, essentially, uh, uh, the, the uh, bad actors use uh, telemarketing to essentially create relationships with patients and then order all sorts of services that are not medically necessary. And we've seen waves in, in, of, of major announcements from the Department of Justice related to these schemes for a couple of years now, even prior to the public health emergency. Um, that's probably not uh, quite as valuable to a, a compliance program or a compliance professional, uh, given that most of the, uh, uh, the, the, the individuals that are identified are, are individual practitioners uh, creating sort of a, a major fraud operation. So it's probably not the, the most helpful to someone who works in an organization that is, is probably trying to do things uh, the right way because 
th these types of settlements uh, are, are not around coding and billing type of uh, errors. It, it's really about actual actual fraud by by individuals. But nonetheless, where, where, where this probably uh, is the most helpful is um, what the, the OIG is, is looking at as part of its work plan. And it, it has a, a whole host of items related to telehealth, particularly the, the uh, impact of the uh, the PHE uh, and and uh, reimbursements and and potential non-compliance there. So I think regardless of whether these telefraud cases uh, are applicable or not, uh, no, the government is nonetheless signaling that telehealth is still a major enforcement priority because the consequences, uh, given the the a uh, considerable uh, liberalization of, of telehealth services uh, are, are significant. Well, and I certainly think there's more to come since we're still relatively new in this and usually the cases end up appearing months, if not years after the incidents. Well, Raul, thank you for sharing these insights with us today. I wanna thank all of you for taking the time to listen. I'm Adam Turteltaub from SCCE and HCCA. I hope we're able to expand your compliance perspective.